so often, got some more power there. It seems so often like we've got two competing areas of conflict going on inside our minds and in our hearts. Part of us wants to pull in one direction and serve the Lord, and then there's another part of us pulling in the other direction that wants to go and serve whatever is out there that doesn't please the Lord. And so there's this conflict, this war going on inside of us, and oftentimes we think, well, when I come to Jesus and I commit to Him and I tell Him I'm going to follow Him and serve Him, that things are going to get easier, then over time it feels like it just got more intense and that the battle that wasn't there has become there because when we used to just sort of go out and do whatever we wanted to, now we got this struggle going inside of us. I know I shouldn't have said that. I know I should have gone there. I know I'll not do this. And there's this struggle going on inside of us all the time. And it, it gets some, somewhat miserable, and we feel like we are going crazy sometimes. Well, relax, because that's not unusual. It's been going on for thousands of years with followers of Jesus and the Apostle Paul, who was a great follower of Jesus, a man tremendously used of God, wrote to the church at Rome, and he said, I feel like I am going crazy trying to follow Jesus and serve him because I got this war going on inside of me. When I want to do the right thing, I turn around and do the wrong thing, and I just there's this battle going on inside of me all the time. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, where we will get an idea of how to get some victory in this battle. As you're turning there, my sermon outline is contained as an insert in your bulletin. The book of Romans is perhaps the doctrinal book of the Bible. It just lays the foundation on issue after issue of what it means to know the Lord and to understand our faith. In Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul presents the picture that we are all under condemnation. That the wrath of God is revealed against us because of the sin in our lives. We are all lost and guilty before God. And when you read those chapters, you get sort of a sick feeling in the pit of your stomach. Man, I don't have a chance because my sin has placed me before God in a place of condemnation. And His wrath is being revealed against my sin. But then in chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 8 and verse 39, Paul goes from a hopeless situation that he has painted of what condition our sin creates between us and God to a place of hope in the salvation that Jesus provides. The righteousness of God is revealed. And who are we in response to that? Well, we're hopeless. We we can't compete with the righteousness of God. However, the Lord shows up. And He has saved us and saves us through the Lord Jesus Christ. And in so doing, He does what the Bible calls in the book of Romans identifies as He justifies us. It is a legal term and it is the idea that in the counsels of God we stand before Him and He looks over, that is the Lord God looks over at His Son who died on the cross, took all of our sin, our shame and our guilt on the cross And he looks at us and he says, that sin was placed on my son. That punishment was placed on my son. And so I'm going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. I'm going to look at you and I'm going to declare you righteous. That is in right standing with me. You can't do it for yourself. I understand that. So I am doing it for you. And I'm not doing it for you because my son 
took your sin on the cross, took your punishment on the cross. It's not what we do, it's what Jesus has already done. And then he plants us in Christ. Now, last week I concluded the sermon with this pathetic plant I had. And you watched me pull the plant up out of the soil and all the roots were exposed. And I said, if it stayed exposed like that, that plant was going to die. And that's exactly what happens in our sin. We are uprooted from God and we're exposed. But then we took that plant and I planted it in a new place and covered the soil up over it. And the Bible says that we are in Christ. He plants us in his son. And that is part of what it means to be justified, that he plants us in his son. Now, moving on from that, we are made holy in Christ. That is, in chapters 6 and 7, we're going to look at part of that today. He makes us holy. That is, he separates us from sin and separates us to himself. And in chapter 8, which we won't have time to get into, but this hopefully will whet your appetite, we are preserved in Christ. In other words, he places us in his Son, and then he holds us there, he keeps us there, he preserves us. We are not hanging on to God so much as the Lord in Jesus is hanging on to us. And our salvation is secured not because of what we're able to do and accomplish and keep on doing and accomplishing, but because of what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will be doing. He is preserving me today, and He is going to be preserving me tomorrow and next week. Now, when we start fighting Him and walking in rebellion to Him, we begin to have all kinds of conflict. And the reason is that He is acting to preserve us to Himself. And so that's what sets off the conflict. Now, in Paul writing here to the church at Rome, he is speaking to house churches, little small groups of Christians scattered throughout the city of Rome, he is writing as a man who has struggles himself. Paul grew up in Tarsus, and he grew up in a city that was filled with corruption. His dad was a Pharisee, which meant he was a strict Jew that followed the Jewish laws. And when he decided, when Paul decided to become a follower of Jesus Christ, as a Jew, he would have lost his social standing, his standing with his family, and his inheritance. He would have lost it all. Now join me in Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. Romans chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. So I find it to be a law or a principle that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law. Waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, that is that part of him that still doesn't want to follow Jesus and serve Jesus, I serve the law of sin. Now Paul is setting up a dichotomy. He says, in my mind, I want to serve Jesus and walk with Jesus and follow Jesus, but then with this part of me 
that, that the Lord just hadn't gotten lordship over yet. This part of me that's in rebellion against him and struggling against him, he identifies that his flesh, that flesh wants to go in the other direction. Verse 21, I'm crazy because of the struggle within. And again, my sermon outline is contained in your bulletin as an outline, and there's some blanks in there, and I'll do the best I can to give you the stuff to fill those out, all right? Paul says, I look inside of myself, and I'm, I feel crazy because I got this struggle going on inside of me, and he identifies it. Verse 21, he says, there's a law there. It's not a law in the sense that we think of laws in our society, that a bill that's passed by the General Assembly or whatever. The idea there is that he's saying there's a principle inside of me. There is a force inside of me. There is an influence inside of me. He's saying there's two powers inside of us that are in a struggle, a combat with each other. And he's saying this force or this influence inside of me says, go do the wrong thing. He says, there's this law in me. But he says, I want to do what is right. He says, I want to be in a, a good place. A place of honesty. A place that is honorable. In verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do what's right. When I want to be in that good place. When I want to be honest. When I want to be honorable. When I look at life and I say, God, I want to walk with you, Jesus. I want to live for you, Jesus. I want to say the right thing. I want to do the right thing. He says, every time I want to do that, evil is right there beside me, and it's waiting and watching to ambush me. It tries to corrupt what I would do. Now, let's talk about some ways that that, that happens to us. Have you ever had this experience? You get up in the morning, you get a good shower, you eat breakfast, and it's a good breakfast. You spend some time with the Lord in prayer and in His Word, and you are ready for your day. And you're going to go out and you're going to serve the Lord. And then you get to work. And serving the Lord just went out the door somewhere. You walk in and your boss is down your throat before you know what's happened good. Something else screws up. And it's all you can do to keep from biting people's heads off because you are so irritated with what's happening. And that ever happened. Now, some of you like to say, oh, I wish it took till I got to work. It happens before I ever get out the door. I don't have to wait till I get to work. Has this ever happened to you? Particularly those of you that got children. It's Sunday morning and you're headed to church. And you're going to be so godly and spiritual at least one day out of the week when you walk out the door. So you get up and you're getting dressed and we're going to be spiritual and we're going to be godly and we're going to be ready to worship when we get to church. And then everything starts falling to pieces. The clothes, you know, gets the kid, your, your child dumps stuff all over the clothes. You get to redress them again. And, and the child that you are married to uh, messes up something. And so then you got to go and get them redressed before you can get them out the door. And so by the time you get to the door, you are just beyond yourself. I had a, a, got a preacher friend I heard uh, only in person, but a great guy served for years for the Lord. He was sharing that when he was growing up as a kid one morning, they were getting up to go to church. And I mean, it was a war, getting, getting ready and getting so and forth. And they got in the car and got his brothers and his sisters, whatever, the rest of the family in the car. And they're heading down the road, fuss, fussing and feuding and everything. Got to get to church on time. And they pass a neighbor. Well, the neighbor's sitting out in the front yard with not too many clothes on in his lawn chair drinking a beer. 
And so his parents say, look at old sorry so-and-so. He's sitting out there drinking a beer. And he said, I sat in the back, and I thought, well, we don't have fussed and carried on ahead of time. He looks like he's having a good time sitting in the front chair and the front yard drinking a beer. I think I'd like to join him out there. He looked like he had more fun than we are on our way to church. But have you ever noticed that no matter what happens to you on the way to church on Sunday morning, when you hit the parking lot, there's a transformation that happens when you open the door. You just step out in the parking lot and the smile comes over your face and the voice gets calm. And Hi, brother. Hi, sister. How are you all doing today? It's so good to be with you in the house of the Lord. Well, Paul is talking about it. He says this is the kind of thing that goes on inside of us, this struggle, this battle that's going on. And he says every time that I get ready to do what's right, evil is watching and it's right there to jump. Now, it's interesting the way the Greek language works with this. It's also the idea that I start out with a good motive, and then my motive gets corrupted. In other words, I'm doing the right thing, but I'm doing it for the wrong reason. I'm serving the Lord, but I really am trying to get people to look at me and think nice things about me. I'm really sort of on the inside hoping that Something that I was a part of, and it, whatever reason I'm not a part of it anymore, will sort of, you know, go down the tubes because I'm not a part of it anymore. Because it's really about me. It's not about the Lord. He says that evil is waiting to ambush me. Now, verse 22. He moves on here, and he talks about the key to making sure that I go with the right thing. For I delight, verse 22, in the law of God in my inner being. The key issue is delight. What do I delight in? Not that I'm forced to do what's right, but what do I delight in? The Holy Spirit is the means to delight in the things of the Lord. I delight in His habits. I delight in His thinking. I delight in the desires of God. John Piper, who's one of my favorite authors in his book, Desiring God, which is a book I would highly recommend to you, says the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. Let me read that again. The chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying Him forever. It is the work of the Holy Spirit of God inside of us to cause us to delight in the Lord and the things of the Lord. So when I'm serving the Lord, I'm doing it not because I'm forced to, not because I'm compelled, not because I'm guilt-tripped into it, but because I want to serve the Lord. I want to walk with Jesus. And, the, and we see, whatever I delight in, that's what I'm going to end up doing. Most of us don't do stuff for a long time that we just don't enjoy doing. But what we really enjoy doing, that's what we get into. And so that's what he does. He says we're, It's what we delight in. Now, the spiritual disciplines are for the purpose of enabling us to delight in the Lord. When I read the Bible, the purpose of reading the Bible is not to say I've read the Bible. Early on in my Christian experience, I would set out each day, I'm going to read so many chapters of the Bible. And I felt that I was a good Christian if I read so many chapters of the Bible. So it was all about how many chapters of the Bible that I read. I didn't necessarily understand it, didn't necessarily get anything out of it, didn't necessarily help me get close to Jesus, but I had done my duty for the day. Same thing with prayer. See, the end is not saying I jump through all the hoops. The end is that reading this 
is for the purpose of me falling more in love with Jesus and delighting more in Jesus and getting closer to Jesus. That's what the Bible is about when it says, Taste and see that the Lord is good. I love the verb he uses there. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Don't just observe and see that the Lord is good. Sink your teeth into it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. So when I read His Word, I'm tasting Him. When I pray, I'm tasting Him. When I'm worshiping, I am tasting Him. And you see, the way this battle sin in us is the more I taste of Jesus and the more I delight in Jesus and the more I'm falling in love with Jesus and the more I'm drinking into my life His glory and His power and the awesomeness of who Jesus is, the less I'm going to want sin. If you and I stay out of sin, it's not because we look over at it and we say, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin, I'm not going to sin. What ends up happening? We go and we jump right flat dab into the middle of sin. But if I'm saying, Jesus, I want to love you, I want to know you, I want to get closer to you, your word, prayer, worship, serving you is my way, Lord, of getting closer to you. I'm enjoying you, I'm delighted in you. That's what gets us out of sin. Now, the opposite of that is that if I delight in the evil, then I'm going to get all excited about that and jump into that. And that's going to have negative repercussions in my life. Let me illustrate it this way. I brought a mega chocolate bar with me this morning from Iceland. All right, all of you that are chocoholics, just look at this. Okay, our son went to Iceland back in the fall and he brought my wife back. A chocolate bar. And they make them serious chocolate bars over in Iceland. I am highly allergic to chocolate. My wife is a chocoholic. You put chocolate in front of her and they won't stay there for very long. Uh, But if I eat chocolate within 24 hours, I'm going to have a major nosebleed. Uh, Some kind of chemical reaction with the blood cells in my nose. It causes them to expand and, and explode. And uh, you don't want to be around me. If I ate this, I'd probably end up in a hospital in 24 hours and have to get a blood transfusion. I'd bleed so much. So I look at this, and I have to stay away from it. Now, I know if I eat this, what it's going to do to me. So there's the fear of it and the knowledge of how bad it can be. But here's the deal. If I sit here and just look at this, and then I take the wrapper off of it, and I smell it, and I keep looking at it, and I keep smelling it, and then I lick it a little bit, just a little lick, which is going to lead to a second lick, which is going to lead to a third lick, which is going to lead to a chomp. The next thing I know, this thing is in here, and I'm probably headed to the doctor's office within 24 hours to get my nose cauterized. Now, this is the way we get into sin. That's what sets up the battle. We look at it. We start playing with it in our minds. We start thinking about it. Man, it looks so good. And instead of tasting of the Lord, we start tasting of the sin. And not only do we go for it, 
But pretty soon thereafter, we start having a major spiritual, emotional bleed. And that's why sin in us, given time, causes us to start hemorrhaging big time. Joy, peace, relationships, etc. That's because we're focusing on that. We're delighting in that. What are we choosing to? Notice what he says in verse 23. But I see in my members another law. And notice how he describes this law of sin. Waging war against the law of my mind. Now, if you look at the word where it's word waging there, in the Greek language, it is the idea of a campaign. Not just a battle, but a campaign. What Paul is saying here is that this law of sin wages a campaign. In other words, we don't get the victory on Tuesday, which means we're good for the rest of our life. A campaign is composed of battle after battle after battle. Even more, a campaign is composed of strategy. If a general orders a campaign, he knows there are going to be multiple battles, and he's got a strategy he's using those battles to accomplish. Folks, Satan has a strategy to take you down and take you out. And he is patient. As long as it takes, he's after us with the strategy. And he's willing to fight battle after battle after battle to take us down and take us out. And when you and I operate like, well, I got the victory on Monday, so I'm good to go for the rest of the week. Or I got the victory on the day I came to Jesus, so I'm good to go for the rest of my Christian life. We're going to end up defeated and beat up because Satan looks at you when you come to Christ. Satan looks at you and I when we say, I'm going to follow Jesus. Satan looks at us when we say, I'm going to turn over and I'm new leaf in my life and I'm going to walk with the Lord. When we say, I'm going to serve the Lord in this particular area, Satan comes with, up with a strategy. He knows there's going to be multiple battles and he's going to nail you on Monday. He's coming after you on Wednesday. He's going to come after you on Friday. He's going to do whatever he's got to do as long as he's got to do it to take us out. That's the idea of this campaign. Notice the next word that he uses there in verse 23. He says, I see in my members another law, war, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Not only is it a war, but he is saying that it is also one that enslaves us. Now, how does he enslave us? He doesn't walk up and say, get involved in this sin so it will enslave you. He makes it alluring. He makes it exciting. He rouses the desire inside of us. All the while, he's going to enslave us. Now, think about Paul's life. Because Paul says, a oh, wretched man that I am, I'm waging this war and I feel like I'm having defeats. I feel like I'm being enslaved. And we tend to look at Paul and we think, man, this guy had it together. He was this great warrior for Jesus, and he was. But Paul here is getting brutally honest, and he's saying, I look at myself, and I'm so frustrated. I feel like I'm going crazy. I'm just, I'm just a wretched guy. Now, what in the world could Paul have been struggling with? Well, let me give you some ideas, okay? First of all, Paul's from Tarsus. He grew up in a city filled with corruption. He saw corruption all around him. He was conditioned growing up with the corruption that was in his hometown. That was no doubt a temptation for him that he struggled against. Now, let me state the obvious. Paul was a man. A male. 
And if you go back and read Romans chapter 1, a good chunk of Romans chapter 1 is he was talking about the lust that the Romans were struggling with. If you read through Paul's epistles, his letters to the churches, often he talks about the struggle with the lust of the flesh. And you get the feeling when you read it, he's not doing that from a platonic perspective. He knows what he's talking about. He's struggled there. I haven't met a man or ever known of a man who didn't struggle, if he was really honest, in the area of the lust of the flesh. And Paul was a man. So no doubt he struggled with the lust of the flesh. Paul had lost his family, his friends, because he decided to be a follower of Jesus. And there was that loneliness that he dealt with all the time. And finally, as best we can tell from Scripture, Paul gives some hints. He probably had a short fuse. He had a temper on him. He was a tough, hard-charging leader. He had to be to take on the Roman Empire and plant churches all over the place. But Paul seems not to have had a whole lot of patience with folks who didn't get on his bandwagon in a hurry. And we wonder if, and Paul talks in one place about a thorn in the flesh. Now, he doesn't tell us what that thorn in the flesh was, but he says, I went to the Lord on multiple occasions, and I said, God, would you take it away from me? And the Lord said, no, I'm not going to take it away from you, but I will give you the strength you need to deal with it. My grace will be sufficient. Paul had a, apparently had a temper on him. So Paul was a guy, that he says, I look at the things that I struggle with, and I just want to scream out in despair. He says, verse 24, who will deliver me? Who's going to rescue me? Notice something else he makes, says in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? And notice the phrase he uses, from this body of death. Now, I need to give you a gross illustration, okay? All of my middle school boys are going to love when I'm just about to describe to you, okay? Because middle school guys love gross stuff. So we're going to give you a gross stuff here, okay? The Roman emperors loved to come up with grotesque ways of punishing people. If you were convicted of murder in the Roman Empire, this is what the Roman emperors had decreed. If you were convicted of murder, they would find a corpse, preferably the corpse of the person that you murdered, and they would tie it to you so that you walked around everywhere you went with this decaying corpse literally hanging on you. Can you imagine the smell? Can you imagine how people avoided you? Can you imagine knowing that this corpse was laying on your back and you couldn't get loose from it? You'd watch pieces of flesh falling off of it. You could feel the blood oozing with the infection onto you. My wife told me to end the illustration just a minute. <laughs> My young people love this, and some of y'all get nauseated, all right? When Paul says here in verse 24, who will deliver me from the body of this death? We think that's what he's talking about. This old part of me that doesn't want to serve Jesus is like having a dead body strapped to me, and I'm carrying it around on me all the time. 
And I want deliverance. I want to be rescued. I want to be delivered. In fact, I am desperate to be delivered. Man, I am so glad he didn't stop there. Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. I wanted deliverance. And I've got it. Where does deliverance start? It starts at Thanksgiving. If you and I want to walk in deliverance, it starts at thank the point in the place of Thanksgiving. Paul said, I got this dead body of sin attached to me, the shame, the guilt, the frustration. Who's going to deliver me? And then Paul looks at Jesus. He, he looks at Jesus on the cross dying for him. He looks at Jesus coming out of that grave resurrected and full of life. And Paul literally explodes in a crescendo of praise. And he says, thank you Jesus, I am delivered. Thank you Jesus that you reach down and I can't get the corpse off of me. But you cut it off of me and you throw it aside. And you replace it with your life and your presence and your love. Thank you, Jesus, that you have delivered me. Folks, if we're going to walk in the deliverance that he's got for us, we start that walk in thanksgiving. See, Satan's going to do everything he can to take away from us thanksgiving because if he can stop us from praising, stop us from worshiping, stop us from being thankful and get us to focus on our problems and our heartaches and our headaches and everything else, then he knows he holds us in bondage. But if we choose to say, Jesus, I don't care what's happening, I'm going to say thank you. I don't care what I'm facing, I'm going to say thank you, Jesus. I'm going to walk in what you've done and I'm going to walk in who you are. Thank you, Jesus, for delivering me. Now, let me identify one area that he delivers us in. He delivers us in the struggle where we want to be safe instead of going on with him. That sounds like a strange thing to say. But a lot of times we want a Christianity that doesn't have any suffering in it, no sacrifice, and is very safe and predictable. And you can't follow Jesus and have a faith that's safe, predictable, no apparent losses. Everything's going to be just under control. It just doesn't exist. Jesus said, if they rejected and persecuted me, they're going to reject and persecute you. So he delivers us. But one of the places he delivers us from is a faith where we want stuff safe to a faith that we are willing to put it on the line and if need be, suffer with Jesus and suffer to the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sacrifice with Jesus, sacrifice for His honor and His glory. Now, how does He deliver us? I just talked about it through thanksgiving and through praise. He will use the Word of God in our lives, prayer in our lives, worship other people. And how does He do that? He does that with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit of God given to us when we trust Christ as our Savior takes the Word of God and the Spirit of God does two things with the Word of God. 
The Spirit of God takes the Word of God and He satisfies our souls with the Word of God. And second thing the Spirit of God does with the Word of God is He makes the Word of God clear to us. A lot of times folks have said to me, Pastor, I like to read my Bible. I know I ought to read my Bible, but I can't understand it. And I know there's a plethora of study books and study Bibles that are out there, and I commend them to you. But let me beg you to do this, okay? The greatest Bible teacher that's out there is the Holy Spirit. And Christians got along okay for thousands of years without study Bibles, believe it or not. Take the Word of God and simply do this. Lord, by the power, the direction, the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit, would you teach me your word? Would you make this clear to me? And would you feed my soul with this? And I'm going to wait on you to do that as I get in your word. And the Spirit of God is totally sufficient to do that. Back in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17, David, who was a young man, went to the encampment of Israel. And the Israelites were in their encampment shaking in their boots because this great big giant called Goliath kept coming out and intimidating them. They were in bondage to Goliath. They were in bondage to their fear. And David looked at him and he said, what is y'all's problem? We don't serve Goliath. We don't serve fear. We serve the Lord God Almighty. And I'm going to walk in that truth. And I'm going to live in that truth. And I'm going to walk out here and I'm going to face Goliath in that truth. And Saul tried to put his armor on David and it didn't fit. And David said, let me just walk out here. In God's power. David reached down and picked up five smooth stones. And with that one stone, he threw it at Goliath. The stone didn't, knock, didn't kill Goliath. God did. David's strength didn't take Goliath out. His faith took Goliath out. And you see, there was a war going on, not between the Philistines and the Israelites. There was a war going on between faith and no faith. And Israel had opted to have no faith. And David walked into the middle of that and said, I'm going to have faith. In the Lord God Almighty, and he's going to win the battle. That's what this passage is calling us to do. In that struggle inside of us. I'm going to look at Jesus. I'm going to focus on Jesus. I'm going to ask for the ministry of the Holy Spirit to bring the Word of God alive in my mind, in my life. I'm going to ask the Spirit of God to ignite worship inside of me to worship Jesus with. And then in thanksgiving, I'm going to move forward and attack the Goliaths in my life. And this battle will be won. Yes, it's a battle. And yes, the Goliath is there. But we will have victory because of Jesus. And because they're going to focus on him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you have given us your word. The power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And yes, Lord, some days we feel like we're going crazy. With the struggle and the battle within. But Lord, you 
have given us all we need to walk with you. Lord, we ask that you would just work with us and discipline us and continue, Lord, to, to pull us to yourself, Lord, so that, Jesus, we are focused on you. Thanks be to you, Lord, that we know deliverance through the Lord Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, if you've never come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, never made the decision to want to follow him, I want to encourage you to say these simple words to him. Jesus, I want to know you. And Jesus, I want to follow you. Jesus, I want to know you. Jesus, I want to follow you. And in a moment, we're going to sing. And as we do, I want to invite you to do something very courageous. To step out from where you are and to walk the aisle here and say, Pastor, I, I want to know him. And I've asked him if I, I, I just told him I want to follow him. Every person Jesus called, he called publicly. If you're here and you sense that the Spirit of God is speaking to you and saying, you need to be baptized as these folks were earlier today, I invite you to come. If the Spirit of the Lord is speaking to you and saying, I want you to become part of this church family, then we invite you to come and join here with us. If you need to come and pray, as always, the altar is open. If the Spirit of the Lord has been nudging you and dealing with you and saying, I want you to surrender to a call into ministry that I'm giving you, then I want encourage you to do that. Lord, have your way with us in these moments, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing, come if you will.